Welcome to BYOB, the Bring Your Own Book Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Tilly. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're so excited to be talking about Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, which is one of Nikki's favorite books. Tilly and I had never read it before, and I have never read a Neil Gaiman book before, before this one. So, oh. yeah. So we can't wait to discuss. Here's the publisher synopsis, courtesy of Nikki. Under the streets of London, there's a place most people could never even dream of. A city of monsters and saints, murderers and angels, knights in armor and pale girls in black velvet. This is the city of the people who have fallen between the cracks. Richard Mayhew, a young businessman, is going to find out more than enough about this other London. A single act of kindness catapults him out of his workday existence and into a world that is at once eerily familiar and utterly bizarre, and a strange destiny awaits him down there, beneath his native city, Neverwhere. Ooh! (laughs) (laughs) So, because most of this book takes place in London Below, or Neverwhere, or I think it's also called The Underside, many Mm -hmm. different names, um, we've gone literal and chosen a drink called Sewer Water. Sorry, what was that called, Tilly? (laughs) It's called Sewer Water. And we're going to drink it. We're going to drink it. So it's made with two ounces of vodka, five ounces orange juice, and four ounces Dr. Pepper. And as you can imagine, it looks disgusting. Um, But hopefully it'll turn out like London Below, which looks gross, but is actually filled with magic and imagination. So should we take a sip? I am terrified. I hate Dr. Pepper. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. Well, I like Dr. Pepper, so I'm hopeful, but I'm not hopeful for you too. I'm excited, but I'm scared. (laughs) All right. Here we go. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, huh. <laughs> oh! It's like layered. Oh, oh right? I just got the vodka. Holy moly! Okay, I, I got, like it. I got orange juice. Of course you do, Nikki. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got orange juice, and then suddenly a weird aftertaste of like popsicle, like you had mentioned, Tilly. And then mm-hmm. I got the vodka, Dr Pepper. Like what? Yeah, mine kind of, um, because it's been sitting here for a few minutes, it kind of separated. So I got, like, the orange juice at the top. Maybe I need to stir it around. Oh, God. I'll just, uh, oh, no, here's a... Some nice, um, what's it called? ASMR? Mm. (laughs) Well, maybe it's really just mimicking the story. So many layers (laughs) and things going on. Oh, bringing it back. Wow, that is tart. She tart. Okay. Oh, I think I like it. I haven't decided yet. We'll we'll see as the night goes on. I'll probably finish it because I'm gonna need something. <laughs> but this is who knows. It's not it's not the worst. But anyways, all right. Moving right along into our star ratings. So as you may or may not know, we like to give a rating out of five stars. We have our own reasonings behind how we decide whether it's a one, two, three, four, or five star book, and it's. Yeah, it is what it is. So, Nikki, why don't you go first? Great. So, this is my second time reading this book. The first time I read it was the very nice illustrated edition. I think it was originally a UK edition that came over to Canada. And I loved it. Five stars. This time I listened to the audiobook that's actually narrated by Neil Gaiman on Audible. Cool. And I... Loved it. Amazing experience. 
I have um, a little bit of an attention problem. So this time while I was reading it, I wasn't quite as focused as I would have liked to be. But I already knew what was going on. So it wasn't really that detrimental to me. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I love this book. It just gives me so many different feelings about so many things that we'll get into later. (laughs) Thank you. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tilly, how about your rating? Sure. Um, So this is my first time reading this book, but I've read uh, several other Neil Gaiman books and have loved them all. Uh, I gave this a five out of five. I think it is so quintessentially Neil Gaiman. It really toes the line between gothic and arcane horror and also like magical whimsy. And I really love that juxtaposition. And the copy that I read was actually a gift from Nikki. And it is the beautiful UK illustrated edition, which adds so much to the story. So uh, yeah, I really had a great time reading it. I started it and knew that I was going to love it. And then I did that thing where I, I stopped reading it because I did, never wanted it to end. Oh, so yeah. I thought, well, if I just don't read it, it'll just be in limbo in my brain forever and I can live there forever and ever. But um, you do actually have to finish things. So I did finish <laughs> it and it was great. <laughs> cool. I mean, you don't have to finish things, but... It's good. It's a good practice. Yeah. It would have yeah, been weird got- to do this episode if you hadn't. Oh my so. gosh. If you hadn't finished this and I had to finish friggin' Children of Blood and Bone, that would be a whole oh, other dear. episode, okay? <laughs> so, okay, my rating, I gave it, I'm a little different than both of you. I still really enjoyed it, but I ended up giving it a 3.5. Hear me out. <laughs> No, no one said anything. But okay. That's a pretty <laughs> that's <okay>. average <laughs> thing. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I really enjoyed the book, but for me, the pacing was a little slow for me, mm-hmm. even though they were constantly moving forward in the book. I think I was expecting something a little different in tone just because I had never read a Neil Gaiman book before. Um, I've seen Coraline, I've seen Stardust, and I've enjoyed both of them. So I guess I just really didn't know what to expect. I did really enjoy it, but I don't know. I think it was something to do with the pacing where it took me way longer to read than I thought it would. Mm. And yeah, so I think at the end, and I had some issues with the end of the book, which we will get to later because spoilers, but I did still really enjoy it. Nikki lent me her hardcover that we've been talking about a lot so far with the illustrations, and I'm glad that you did. Thank you, <laughs> because <laughs> it really did add to the story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess this kind of ties into what we're going to talk about next. Um, it First impressions, it really reminded me of sort of like a rolled doll book, but a mm-hmm. bit more mature because there was some really scary and yeah, graphic things. Yes. Um, but the drawings were very rolled doll-esque and the whimsical kind of like ludicrousness of it all and how everything was just accepted. I also thought it reminded me of a... Uh, Forgive me if my pronunciation is wrong. Correct me if you know it. Hayao Miyazaki film. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a lot of that as well because you just kind of are flung into this fantastical world and you can't question anything. It's just like, yep, this is how it is. Keep moving. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was one thing I really loved about it is that mm-hmm. you do kind of get thrown into it right away and it's so all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. Like you get a real sense that Neil Gaiman knows exactly everything, every detail about this world and he's just sharing a little bit with you at a time, which is really exciting for me. I think that's a great point about it feeling like a Miyazaki film. I hadn't really thought about it before, but I think that's totally true. Like there's that same like cutesy, but then like also like kind of really intense scary stuff sometimes. <laughs> well, and also isn't it I think there's a term where it's like there's either soft rules or hard rules or, oh God, I'm probably butchering this, but there's like a specific type of storytelling in fantasy where you get all the rules and explanations like in Lord of the Rings and like crazy backstory and historical stuff. And then there's stuff like uh, Hayao Miyazaki where you don't get a lot of that. You just are living in that world. Or like Star Wars too, where you just kind of like are dropped into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure, but that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really. I don't. It. I don't know what the term is, but I I understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, we all read the illustrated edition. I also listened to a little bit of the audiobook, and Neil Gaiman is a really good narrator. Which... I love him narrating. Yes. It literally. I will listen to this book to go to sleep, I think, (laughs) because I love his voice, his pacing, and the way that he says certain things. I don't know. There's just something so soothing about it. And when Mm -hmm. I read his books, because I've listened to lots of interviews with him, this is not the first Neil Gaiman book that I've read. I've read uh, quite a few of his other works and his anthologies of poems and short stories and essays and everything. I'm a huge fan of him and of his wife. And um, I think from listening to all of those things, when I read his books without an audiobook, I still read them with his voice. Oh, and it's just it's such a nice, like comforting feeling reading him. I guess I also want to mention before we get into anything, we keep referencing the illustrated edition and the illustrations are done by Chris Riddell, yes, who is an you. amazing illustrator. Like if you can get your hands on this, even look online at the illustrations for this book. They are so beautiful and the illustrations go kind of from page to page and they're in the margins and sometimes the text is kind of weird to go around the picture it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Very artful. Yeah, I think I messaged one of you about that because I expected it to be like, oh, this page has a picture and this one doesn't. But it, I, I really liked how it was kind of dispersed throughout the text, like you said. I really liked that. It was just so mm-hmm. much fun. <laughs> and it really helped with a lot of the descriptions because I find when he describes characters, he doesn't spend so much time on their appearance as he does on their personality. Mm-hmm. So like for the Marquis de Carabao, who's one of the characters in this book, he talks a lot about his smile um, and about his coat that he's wearing, but also more kind of about his like snarky attitude. And so it's helpful in those instances to have like a full page illustration of this character as imagined by the illustrator, because then it gives you something to play with in your imagination. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the illustrated edition. I I think it would have been a totally different experience if I'd read it with no illustrations. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I have a question because you've both read Neil Gaiman's work before. This is my first 
step into his world or into the below. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but um, do you find his tone is very similar across books? Like, is this similar to what it would be in American Gods? Yes. American Gods, really? I find, is a little more intense. I think this still had some sense of humor and whimsy. Mm -hmm. And American Gods is, like, more hardcore, I think. It still has some whimsy, but I found it to be more kind of adult and even more graphic. Especially kind of, like, there was more, like, sexual stuff in American Gods yeah. as well. Yeah. I think with American Gods, his writing is still exactly the same. The way mm -hmm. that he he writes things where he he would say things kind of like, it was gray out. It wasn't really nice, really. Like how he adds those kinds of conversational words mm -hmm. and phrasing into his writing. That's all still exactly the same. Mm. And American Gods follows a very similar plot layout where they're always moving. There's always, always stuff That's happening true. and they're always moving forward with the story. They don't stay stagnant for very long at all. American Gods is also a lot longer than Neverwhere. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot more happening. But yes, it is, like Tilly said, a lot more mature yep. in terms of uh, sexual uh, things, viol violence and stuff yep. like that. But the underlying Neil Gaiman-ness is exactly the same. Yeah, I would probably compare Neverwhere more to Stardust. Okay. Um, the book, I think, is more... Uh, is a little darker than the movie. The movie was like very polished and like sparkly, yes. which the book is as well, but also has a lot more intense scenes. Mm. So. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because I had seen the first episode of American Gods because everyone was talking about it and I watched it and I was so lost and I was yeah. like, clearly this is a show you need to have read the book because yeah. I was yeah, so they, lost. They made it for the readers. <laughs> yeah, which is fair. But I just wondered like, because I'd never read anything, I'm like, would it be this whimsical thing and they just made it crazy dark for the show? Like, what is happening? You know, That's why, because that was my first real introduction, I guess, because my sister has read pretty much everything he's written. Um, and the she loves the Sandman prophecies mm -hmm. or whatever that one was called. What's that called? Chronicles? I think they're graphic novels. The yeah, they're graphic they are. novels. They are. I don't know if I said the title right, but the Sandman... Oh, yeah, novels. I think so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they looked scary. So I was like, oh, no, because I was also a kid. So I was like, is he scary, dark, intense? But this was this was still had some creepy moments, but it was fun. So, yeah, yeah I do want to read more of his books. <laughs> I think you would really like the Graveyard book. Okay. That one is not super violent. I think the, the themes of the book and how how the plot comes to be is sad and kind of dark, but basically it surrounds this boy and he lives in a graveyard and all of the ghosts take care of him. Oh. And it's just a very touching story about loss and found family. And all of these ghosts have different attributes and things that they bring to the relationship with him and there's this overarching plot that's tying all of these things together. It's very sweet. It's not as long as Neverwhere. It's quite short. But I think that would be more maybe up your alley. Okay, cool. Well, it sounds like we're getting into recommendations. So just before we go to recommendations, I did want to add that 
because um, I forgot to say it earlier, but when we were talking about Neil Gaiman and his incredible narration skills and storytelling skills in general, I just kept thinking whenever I heard him reading the book, I thought of, wow, how lucky his kids must be, you know, because oh, yeah. not only is he a great writer, but he's such just a great overall storyteller, like just listening to him. I'm like, oh, and he has a daughter, right? Does he have a son as well? Or he has, I think, a, two daughters, maybe. Okay. Definitely a son that's older. He works at Google. Oh, wow. And oh, then wow. he has a son that's, I think, eight or nine. Okay. Um, With his current partner, Amanda Palmer. Mm-hmm. His Just- son's name is Ash. And I, well, I follow them both on Instagram. So there's a lot of pictures of him and he just looks like a pixie and he looks like the coolest kid ever yeah neil Neil gaiman's really active on twitter and so i see (laughs) yeah like lots of tweets about ash is so cute i just think like what a fun what a fun guy you know hey kids gather around i'm gonna tell you a story about the sewers you know like wow so much fun (laughs) like seriously we're actually gonna rename this podcast to the neil gaiman fan club so you're welcome (laughs) i would be honestly fine with that Okay, so since Nikki already brought up a great book recommendation for me, um, do we want to get into book recommendations now? Do we have anything else to say? Okay, let's dive right in then. So for me, I would recommend a Roald Dahl book uh, because of what I said earlier. So I think the one I would recommend would probably be The Witches or Matilda Those were two of my favorites just because they are scary at times and like kids book scary where it's a little creepy, but it lingers with you until you're a grown up and you think, oh, I don't like that, (laughs) but it stuck with me. So I must have liked the story. So I really liked that. Um, And I think I feel like I had another one, but we'll just keep that one. So I think. Yeah, that would be our recommendation. A Roald Dahl book like Witches or Matilda. Tilly, did you have a recommendation? Yeah, I actually have two. So this book made me think a lot about a book that I loved as a kid, which is called The Secret of Platform 13 by Eva Ibbotson. So it is a children's book, but it has a lot of similar vibes of like an ancient magical world that exists parallel to our own. There's like a forgotten door in an overgrown railway station and lots of kind of colorful characters that aren't quite human. So that one made a big impact on me as a kid. And I found myself thinking about it a lot while I was reading Neverwhere. So that would be a fun recommendation from me for a kid's book. Um, And then I also was thinking a lot about an adult novel which just came out, I think, in the last year, which is The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. Mm. So that also has a lot of mysterious magical doorways and subterranean kingdoms and mysteries and danger and colorful characters and kind of like running around doing things. So that would also be a great recommendation from me. Oh my gosh, Tilly got me that book for Christmas and I told her I'm waiting until it's really sunny out to read it because I feel like that would be a good read. And then she said, it takes place underground. And I was like, well, I still want the sun. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited. Whenever you want to read it is great. Yes, I'm going to sit on the deck with Linus, my doggy, and read it. And I'll think of you and you'll get it. (laughs) (laughs) Nikki, did you have another recommendation? 
Um, I don't have one that's super pressing, I guess. Just hearing you guys talk about children's books, I guess I would recommend Coraline, which is also by Neil Gaiman as well. This book is what got me into Neil Gaiman. I also love the movie. It's one of my comfort watches when I'm sick or when I can't sleep. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. (laughs) But the the book is so much scarier than the movie was. It's not really what I would call a children's book. Um, But basically, if people don't know what Coraline is, Coraline and her parents move into uh, an apartment in this building called the Pink Palace, and she finds a door that goes to a brick wall. And at night, she opens the door and there's a tunnel into this other world that mirrors hers where she finds the other mother. And this world is seemingly perfect until it's not. And... So kind of like Neverwhere, you get the opposite side of the coin. Doors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doors. <laughs> it's a theme. Yeah. So that's my other recommendation. Thank you. That's great. I, I haven't seen that movie in a while. I'm going to have to, maybe I'll read the book, but I'll have to read it in the daytime because apparently it's scarier than the already creepy movie. So. All right, listeners, we're now going to move into spoiler territory now. So if you haven't read the book and don't want to know how it all turns out, you should probably stop listening now. But hey, if you like what you're hearing, feel free to leave us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. So if you don't want any spoilers, you should leave now. Okay. (laughs) Let's start off with a quick recap of the rest of the book. As we know from the synopsis, this book follows young businessman Richard Mayhew as he bumbles through his ordinary life in London. He's engaged to the beautiful and ambitious Jessica, but he feels a little overwhelmed by their relationship and the life she's picked out for them. So the action begins when Jessica and Richard are on their way to an important meeting with Jessica's boss, and they stumble upon an injured girl who seems to appear out of nowhere, bleeding and helpless on the sidewalk. While Jessica heartlessly says that they're in too much of a rush to help her, Richard picks up the bleeding girl and carries her away to get help, leaving Jessica fuming. The girl's name is Dor, and she tells Richard she is from London Below, a dangerous magical society that thrives beneath and parallel to our world. It turns out she is fleeing two men, Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar, who have killed her family and are now hunting her. Dor and her family all have a mysterious magical ability to open doors to anywhere, and they can even create doors where there are none. Dor is not sure who she can trust, but while she hides out at Richard's apartment, she asks him to track down the trickster, the Marquis de Carabas, a slippery man who deals in favors. Once Richard completes that task, Dor and the Marquis leave for London below, determined to find out more about why Dor's family was killed and Richard goes back to his ordinary life. But it's not quite so ordinary anymore, as Richard finds out in the morning that his association with Dor and the Marquis have made him basically invisible to the people living in London above. After all, the underside is for the people who fall through the cracks, and after a few awkward encounters with the people he knew best, Richard discovers that his life as he knew it no longer exists. 
A homeless man connected to London Below takes Richard into the sewers, where a community of people known as rat speakers tell him about the floating market, where Dor and the Marquise are sure to be. Richard is escorted to the market by a young rat speaker girl named Anesthesia, but she succumbs to the dangers of the journey across the terrifying Night Bridge. After a solemn visit back to Dor's now-abandoned family home, a message from her late father tells her to go to Islington, an angel she thought to be only myth. While the Marquise leaves the party for an urgent errand, Hunter, Dor, and Richard soon locate and talk to the angel Islington, who tasks them with getting a key from the ominous Black Friars. This key will lead them to the answers they seek. A whole lot of other wild stuff happens, including multiple portrayals, a near-impossible trial for the key, a labyrinth with the giant beast of London at its center, the Marquis' death and magical revival, terrifying scenes with Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar, and Hunter's only failed fight and tragic defeat. In the end, though, it is revealed that the Angel Islington has been behind all the dangers for Dora and her family, and is actually imprisoned in the Citadel for its crime of sinking the city of Atlantis. In a shocking scene, Islington tries to use Dora and her abilities to escape its Citadel prison and take over heaven. Luckily, Dora is able to outwit Islington and sends the Angel and Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar to a location somewhere far away in space and time. And the day is saved! Hooray! <laughs> Richard and Dora eventually part ways as the key from the Black Friars allows him to return to his ordinary life. After several regular weeks back in his office, though, Richard realizes he misses the whirlwind adventures of London below, and the last scene is of Richard desperately carving a door into a wall, begging to go back. It was just a last-ditch effort, and Richard didn't believe it would work, but the Marquis appears in the doorway with a snarky smile, waiting to take him back to Neverwhere. <laughs> <laughs> I was smiling so hard during that ending. I was just like, oh my god, it's all coming together. He's going back. <laughs> See, I had a different reaction. <laughs> oh my gosh, what was your reaction? You hated it? Yes, that's what I said at the beginning. Why? I was like, I didn't like the ending. Because I thought it was so expected. And I was like, Well, there's a sequel coming out. But, <laughs> but, question, well, not question, thought, I guess, thought, um, they could still have a sequel with the way I was hoping it would end. I was hoping, not like I have any say, but <laughs> I was hoping that he would have taken what he had learned from his crazy adventures and changed his life for the better and stopped being a pushover and all, which he kind of did. But then he was like, I'm not happy here because it's not eccentric and whimsical and dangerous. So I'm going to go back, which I thought like, Ugh. Because you can make your life whatever you want it to be. Which he did. He chose to go back. I get it. I just hit my thing. I get it. But it just, it makes me kind of like, ugh. Because I really wanted to have a moment where he was like, screw all this. Screw you, Jessica. Which he sort of did, but not really. And yeah, but then he just decided to go back to this place where he didn't really enjoy most of the time you know 
but yeah i i understand where you're coming from and i agree that it was kind of the expected ending but it was also set up from the very beginning i felt like with richard you know the first time we see him is right before he goes to london i think he's from scotland originally and he kind of has this moment of like oh my god is this all there is is this all my life is ever going to be? So I don't think he was ever really going to be satisfied with London above and just kind of like the regular everyday shuffle. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of expected, like I was hoping that that would be what would happen at the end is that he would end up going back. But I was happy still. Like it was like a fairy tale where you know how it's going to end, but you're still wanting it to end that way. So that's how I felt. For me, I didn't feel like he was going back because of any of the reasons that you said. I was like, oh, he's going to go back because he's found camaraderie and friendship Mm. there. Why would you stay in a place where you feel like you don't have any real connection to anybody Mm. when Mm -hmm. he could go and be with Dor and Hunter and the Marquis and all of them where he's actually forged these special bonds? But wasn't That's how I felt. Yeah. Wasn't Gary his friend, though? Yeah. But, I, like, I guess you never <laughs> see any – well, you just never see them, like, really, like, connecting. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have friends that I don't, like, you know, <laughs> you have friends that are, like, fun friends, and then you have friends that are, like, life friends. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. I just – I did like how the beginning started with him – going outside of a pub being like, oh, God, you know? And then it ended sort of like that, too. Mm -hmm. I did like that, like a nice little bookend, you know? But, um, yeah, I just felt like, oh, really? But I get it. I get it. But, (laughs) yeah, Just open for interpretations. It's totally (laughs) fair that you... It didn't work for you. So I I forgot how the book ended because... I didn't know that that's where it ended. When I listened to the audiobook, there was another chapter or added part that was just about the marquee. Oh, yeah. No, that was in the illustrated edition, too. Oh, was but it? I think it was a, a story that Neil Gaiman had written later. Okay. Yeah. So that was the last thing I heard mm-hmm. just listening through to it. So I was like, oh, that's the end because they didn't say, here's another story. They just said, chapter 20. Gotcha. <laughs> Oh, I see. In the in the physical copy, it did have a little like foreword from Neil Gaiman talking about how he like wanted to go back to the world and he finished this story. And it was kind of like it was more of a I wouldn't I don't know if I'd call it a novella, but it felt longer than a short story, but shorter than a book. Mm-hmm. So, mm. yeah. yeah, they had a couple of questions like interview questions, which I thought was fun. Mm-hmm. I always like reading that. Like, what inspired you, or did you go into the sewers? He said, "Yes, I did go in the sewers. I bet you oh, did. Yeah. I bet you did." <laughs> I always love to read acknowledgments too. I always read the author acknowledgments. Oh, this makes me very emotional. (laughs) You're better than me. I'm like, I'm done. I close it. (laughs) I just get like emotional thinking about the uh, the author talking about all the people who like helped them along the way because it's such a big thing to write a book. And then sometimes they shout out like other authors. Mm. So I've actually read a lot of acknowledgments from YA authors where they shout out Holly Black. Holly Black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cruel Prince. Yeah. Um, so I think she is kind of someone who reads a lot of other kind of aspiring authors' manuscripts and gives feedback. So that was really cool. And Cassandra Clare a lot, too, is thanked a yeah. lot in 
other acknowledgements. So I like to see that. It's just a little community. <laughs> if I ever win an award, you're coming with me. I'll be like, yeah, totally. You'll be like, yes. <laughs> oh, I'd be honored to come. <laughs> Um, I really want to get into some of the characters because there are so many characters in this book. And I want to know who your favorite characters were because I have an answer that you might find surprising. I don't know. know. (laughs) It's like an infomercial. The answer may surprise you. you Can we start with you dial now? Oh, sure. (laughs) Because I want to know. Yeah, because I feel like, I mean, maybe you will guess it, but I felt like what an odd choice, Kelly, (laughs) because you know me. Who is it? I wonder if it's the same as my as me. My as favorite. Mine, as me. I don't know. Yeah, me. Both. Sounds right. I, my Anyways. words didn't happen. Great. Doesn't Grammar. matter. Um, <laughs> my favorite characters were Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Did. Don't you think that's so odd of me? <laughs> but that it is, is weird you. for you. Right. Were, did you, were they your favorite characters in that you liked them as characters but didn't like them as people? Oh, I certainly didn't like them as people. Okay, then that makes more sense to me. Yes, they were really well-drawn out characters. Yeah. (laughs) I just, I really loved, and I guess I could have said this in the beginning because it's not a spoiler, but I wanted to wait because I want to get into it, but I really loved how truthful, in a way, Neil Gaiman wrote them. And I, let me explain, because (laughs) I find a lot of times you read villains and it's just like, I'm evil and I'm just going to be evil and nasty just because okay, they were that, they were nasty, they were gross, but they were also really funny. And they had a mm-hmm. very clear working relationship and friendship of sorts, you know? And so I really enjoyed reading them. And I thought to myself, since my background, I thought like, wow, this would be such a fun role to play, whether it was a mm-hmm. play, radio play, TV show, movie, whatever. Um, because a lot of my favorite lines, if they weren't Richard's inner thoughts going like what's going on in his head i really loved a lot of their back and forth banter because they were just so Mm -hmm. funny and but the the 10 cent word the juxtaposition of the (laughs) the like creepy violent nastiness of them and then they would say something really ridiculous and funny i just loved that because it made me scared when i was reading it i was like oh my god they're so evil you know but that's what it should be so Mm -hmm. yeah they're my favorite. <laughs> I I don't think they were my favorite characters, but I did write a note about them. I loved that they were such well thought out personifications of the classic villain duo. Yeah. The smart guy and then the dumb guy who tags along and does kind of all the dirty work. And the he's muscle. like, yeah, yeah, the muscle, yeah. And so the way that Neil Gaiman describes them is just perfect. There are four simple ways to tell Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar apart. First, Mr. Vandemar is two and a half heads taller than Mr. Croup. Second, Mr. Croup has eyes of a faded china blue, while Mr. Vandemar's eyes are brown. Third, while Mr. Vandemar fashioned the rings he wears out of the skulls of four ravens, Mr. Croup has no obvious jewelry. Fourth, Mr. Croup likes the word likes words while Mr. Vandemar is always hungry. Also, they look nothing alike at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is just such a classic Neil Gaiman paragraph and is perfect. Okay, I have another line that was right after that. And it was, um, oh no, did I write it down? Oh, it's right after that when he says, he waited for the penny to drop. 
and kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And then it hit. (laughs) It's so good, but it's, yeah, he's just so funny. It's like you're talking to a friend, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I agree. It made me kind of excited to read the sections that were told from the perspective of Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar. Even though I didn't want them to win, mm-hmm. I wasn't invested in them as people, like, saving the day. But I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't unhappy to be reading about them because they always had something going on. Like, that scene where Mr. Croup gets the, like, China doll that he, like, has been uh, collecting. I think it's like a little statue from, like, a specific dynasty. And it has this beautiful thing about how he's, like, admiring it. (laughs) And, you know, oh, yes, it's classic. It's got this workmanship and the colors and all this. There's only, like, two in the world or whatever it was. Yes, exactly. Like, art is personified in the world. And he tenderly looks at it. And then he takes a bite and chomps the head (laughs) off. And then, like, pottery dust is everywhere. And I was, like open mouth gasping as I was reading this because it was like, what is happening? This guy is bananas. Right? So maniacal. I love yeah. it. I also really like that their names are kind of switched from the personalities. Because oh, when you, what do you think mean about, or at least when I think about if one of them was going to be named Mr. Croup, I would think it would be like the dumb hulking one mm. and the slimy like schemey guy would be called Mr. Vandemar, but Mr. they're switched. Vandemar. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was also a really nice touch. I don't know if like, I'm probably just thinking too much about it. I, I really highly doubt Neil Gaiman was like, I'm going to switch these names because I think this would be oh, a no. perfect juxtaposition. He probably did. But like, no. And that makes sense that you say that now, because I actually had to go back a couple times to be like, wait a minute, which one's which? Oh, yeah. So I think maybe it is supposed to kind of throw you off a little bit. Mm, maybe, but I did like that. Mm-hmm. Quick little related-ish thing. Um, Google or the internet knows us, honestly. I was reading the book and then I was on Instagram and I got an ad for like bookish merchandise. And there was a ring that was a little Raven's skull-like Mr. Vandemars. And I was like, oh my God, Nikki, because I'm not going to wear that, but I will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can talk about my favorite character if you guys are interested in hearing. I yes. would love to hear about it. <laughs> so I actually had a couple. Um, I really grew to love the Marquis. At first, I wasn't sure what to think about him. I was like, is he kind of a bad guy? I don't really have a good grasp on him as a person. But by the end of the book, and then reading the kind of the uh, extra story about his coat, I really fell in love with the Marquis and just his whole like attitude of just fake it till you make it. (laughs) And like, dealing in favors and getting everyone to owe him something and having this like badass kind of snarky attitude really loved him. But I also had a really soft, tender spot in my heart for Old Bailey, yeah. who was the, like, <laughs> rooftop dweller with all the birds, and he was, like, a little bit cuckoo. <laughs> bird pun. Uh, for all you bird fans, ornithologists out there. Oh, yes, ornithologists. We know this yeah. now. <laughs> that's a 20-cent word. Birdologist. That's a, see, that's an episode one joke. Throwback. <laughs> yeah. 
But I really loved Old Bailey, and he had all these funny little idiosyncrasies with his birds, and how he would, like, tell them jokes, and the birds would, like, respond to him, and he also dealt in information. Mm. So I think he would be at the floating market kind of uh, selling uh, information about things, and I don't know, I just, I had a really soft spot in my heart for him. That's so cute. (laughs) But I guess I never thought about it, but... He has a lot of bird friends, and he deals in information. So a little birdie told me. His little birdies. Yes. Mm. Oh my gosh, Kelly, I think you cracked it. I cracked the code. I don't know what that is, but. (laughs) That's a new musical. That's what that is. Oh, God. (laughs) I think you guys will actually be surprised by this. (gasps) Because my favorite. Okay, who do you think it is? Yeah. Um. Jessica. <gasps> that I literally wrote a note. Page 26. Wow. Jessica is a trifling bitch. LOL. I wrote I wrote a note that said, I know I'm not supposed to like Jessica, but god damn it if I don't respect her. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't really have that big of a problem with Jessica. She was kind of just like selfish. I'm just yeah. like you. And lots of people are selfish. Yeah. I was like, Richard, <laughs> no. Okay, who's your favorite? I'm gonna say. Um, I'm, oh, surprising. I don't know. I don't think it's Door. Is it? It's Door. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you say it like that? I don't know. Well, I don't know. I just didn't think. I was like, no. (laughs) That's why I thought you'd be surprised because it is Door. (laughs) Tell us about it, Nikki. Yeah. That made me think of Greece, where she's like, tell me about it. Stud. I was literally going to do that, and then I was like, that's so inappropriate, Tilly, don't you dare. <laughs> um, so I, well, if pe- people have been listening to the podcast, they probably know by now that I don't technically, t- not technically, typically like the best characters or the nicest, purest characters. But I don't know, there was something about Dor and her personality, and she was really no shit, but she was always very nice about it. Mm. And I really liked that. And also, I think her powers are really cool. Totally. And loved all of the backstory with her dad and um, her going through the house and finding his journal and how... All of the doors in the house went to a different place so that nobody that could really find cool. them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I felt really connected to Door and also Anesthesia. Yeah. Because that just made me sad. It's that me. And it shook me. Oh my God. <laughs> that part, yeah, that part was so sad. Yeah, I had to like take a break from reading it for a while because I was like, wait a minute, did she just, did she just die? Yeah. She got taken by the darkness by the on the night, night bridge. And but sometimes just, they come back. That's true. But sometimes that's true. We just met her too, so that's saying something. We were like, oh, she's well, gone. Well, and she had such a like sad backstory of being abused as a mm-hmm. child and living in London above and then kind of running away and not wanting to be found and then finding this community of rat speakers in London below and feeling like connected to them. And then I just want to serve the rats and like worship the rats and help them out. And then she was doing all that right, but she still got stolen away. It was really sad. Yeah. Yeah. I do wish that we had learned just a little more about Door, but maybe that's in the sequel. I don't know, because I haven't read it, but... I don't know. The well, sequel isn't out. Oh. 
interesting. This yeah, was he, written a while ago, too. Like 20 years ago yeah. or more. Wow. Get on And it. I was reading, too, that it was originally um, a TV series that he wrote called Neverwhere. It was like a short, I think, small budget TV series. And then he wrote the book afterwards because hmm. he wanted to kind of like delve more into the world. So I'd be really interested to see a TV series. I can't really see it translating very well. The pictures I saw from the production were kind of just like regular looking people. Yeah. <laughs> like walking around saying things. And time, that feels wrong to me. The time period, like this was written in the 90s and TV in the 90s. Girl. <laughs> it's nostalgic, <laughs> but you know. No, also, I know that they did a radio play version of it. Um, James McAvoy is in it. I can't mm-hmm. imagine that he's not Richard. I don't know who else he would be. <gasps> there he is. I love James McAvoy. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, I think that would be really cool because it's just so descriptive. I think that would be very mm-hmm. interesting. Um, I do want to say about Dor and Richard, now that I've brought him up, <laughs> I'm really happy that he did not write a romance with them. I'm right. so happy about that because – I did worry about that. I was like, really? Is this going to happen? But no. So glad. It was just a very nice, almost like sibling love. They really cared about each other. And he didn't mm-hmm. He didn't want to lose her. And she didn't want anything to happen to him. I just, I really loved that. Yeah, there were a few moments where I kind of felt like, oh, is this going to go into romantic territory? I don't know how I feel about that. Especially because I... I didn't really have a good sense of how old Dor was, but she felt like quite a bit younger than Richard, who was a businessman, like a young businessman, but I assumed he was like in his 20s. And Dor was often referred to as like the girl or the child. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't want anything weird to happen here. And it never did. It always did feel very like pure, like like Kelly was saying, like it was very friendship based love. So that was nice. I agree. Sorry, this drink, I keep drinking it, and then I'm like, why am I drinking it? My stomach is starting to seize up. Why am I drinking it? Oh, no. Sewer water. That's sewer water for you. (laughs) Cautionary tale. Um, (laughs) I also want to bring up some of these twists and turns. Holy moly. Oh, my God. I was like, who is... I honestly thought the Marquis or the Marquise... Me too. The audiobook, he says Marquise, I think. Maybe just because he's British. Marquis. But he does say the S on the end of Carabas. Yeah. Marquis de Carabas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I thought he was going to be a baddie. You know, I thought he was going to be a villain. (laughs) Well, I think he is technically still a baddie. (laughs) (laughs) But like an Instagram baddie. (laughs) He's just like good to door because he had to repay a debt. Yeah. But I mean, he could have tried to wiggle his way out of it and been like, well, I already held you at this step. So now I'm done, you know? So I yeah, did. he was pretty devoted in the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when he died, that, wow, that whole scene, I was like, what the fuck? Okay. Because, yeah, Mr. Croup, Mr. Vandemar, wow. Wow, wow, wow. So nasty and just calculating and cold and slow with it all. Just, ugh. But I, I loved the way they were written, but I hated it. It was so, whoops, it was so gross. Um, but I was like, oh my God, he's dead. But then I thought he can't be dead because this is a this is a fantastical world. <laughs> he must come back. <laughs> so I'm glad that he came back to help. 
Um, well, because he had hidden that silver box away, right? Yes. That mysterious silver box that we didn't know what was inside of it. And that it turned out it was his life. <laughs> he was keeping his life somewhere separate for safekeeping <sighs> with Old Bailey, whom I love. <laughs> <laughs> just so much fun. And I really loved Hunter. I loved how just like, you didn't like her? I didn't like her. I never <gasps> trusted her. Never one moment. I thought she had a really funny... I liked how she was introduced with um, mm-hmm. with that fight. That's what I'm thinking of. Because I was like, you go get him. You know? <laughs> like, just, yeah. Oh, she was definitely powerful. Yes. That's what I loved about her. She When she double-crossed, I was like, wow. For a friggin' spear? You could have just asked them. Want to kill the beast? We're going. You know? God. I was like, really, girl? But whatever. So (laughs) one thing I did like that pertains to Hunter in a way is that at the end of the book, when Richard becomes the greatest hunter in all of London below, it's not because he suddenly became a great hunter. It's because Hunter told him what to do and he followed the directions well. Mm-hmm. Oh, good point. That is something that I really dislike in books where somebody has been constantly not doing things the most perfect way and then all of a sudden when it matters they're like I'm a warrior and then they just like pull it out right. at the end, but he never does that. He's just a normal person and he has a great group of people around him that assist him in doing the things that need to happen. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I felt like it was a very natural character progression and development for him. Yeah. And I just really appreciated that. You know who he reminds me of? <laughs> who? You're going to hate me. I, he reminds me a little bit of Henry from The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Just mm. slightly. <laughs> Nikki stuck her tongue out, yeah. for those of you who can't see. <laughs> Podcasting is an audio medium. Des- what is it? Descriptive video or whatever, right? Um, she stuck her tongue out at us with attitude. Um, he <laughs> reminds me of him a little bit, just in the sense that he gave me the same feeling of, I just wanted to wrap him in a big hug. And, you know, he he was not in a good place at the beginning of this book. He really was not, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know where he is now, <laughs> right? But he's on the up, so that's good, you know. Um, yeah, this he just reminded me a little bit of him. <laughs> Do we want to talk about the um, the ending? Sort not the ending, ending, but with Islington and that like door portal to hell slash black hole. That really threw me. I I kind of liked that there was an evil angel because, you know, that's a thing <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> right? <laughs> In the canon, I guess you would say. Um, oh, yeah. The biblical canon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like whatever the term is. Um, I did appreciate that. And I also, at first, I was like, why is Neil Gaiman calling Islington it? But then I was like, because the angel's not a person, it's like a thing right it's like this but i i found islington very interesting very mysterious you know which made the twist at the end like oh because well i guess we found out just before the end right but uh i didn't expect that i just thought 
you know, I was like Richard, like, yeah, angels, they're great. We're going to help the angel. Why? We don't know, because this is what Dor and the Marquis said, you know? So I did find that really interesting. And yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun to picture them, like, whirling through the air, like, ah, holding on to the pillars. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I really liked, but I don't know specifically why or maybe that's not a a good way to put it i think if it wouldn't have been done well it would have been a cop-out for mr croup and mr vandemar at the end to be like we stole your dad's journal and changed it because they through the whole book there was no reason to suspect islington of being evil because her dad specifically said in his journal go to the angel and the angel will help you. Mm -hmm. So automatically you're just like, okay, great. The angel's going to help them. And something else is the reason that everything is going awry. And at the end they say, ha, we tricked you. We actually changed the journal before it said, do not trust Islington. Islington is the cause of all of the wrong doing that's that's going on. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think if the book wouldn't have been written well, I would have been like, wow, what a fucking cop out. But because I loved the book and the writing and the character development, it felt like it was a justifiable thing to have happened because I believed in the characters and their motivations. Mm -hmm. Well, and there was something weird going on with the journal too, right? Like Dora had looked for it before and hadn't been able to find it. Mm -hmm. And then when she went back with the marquee, they were able to find it. And she was so confused of like, it wasn't here before and now it's here. So I think it did make sense. I agree. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know what I should have said earlier? This reminds me of the princess bride because (laughs) (laughs) which I think this is another reason why I only gave it a three and a half out of five because of the pacing thing I was talking about. Um, I have an issue with like road trip or like journey kind of stories because it starts to get very repetitive for me. So with this book, I felt like I enjoyed it all, but I just wish sometimes the pacing had been different because I felt like we were meeting so many really interesting characters and then quickly leaving So there were so many characters in this book that I'm like, I don't need to know their whole life story. Like, no, I don't need that. But it was just so fast. Like, I would have liked to have learned more about her dad, Lord Portico, you know? What was he keeping in that journal? Uh, More about Dor, more about the Marquis, more about uh, Mr. Croup, Mr. Vandemar, you know, just, I don't, Old Bailey. He was just this, like, eccentric guy on the rooftop, you know? (laughs) But I think it provides a lot of fodder then to go back and write little short stories about them because it leaves you wanting more. And I I think it would also be a really good jumping off point for like fan fiction (laughs) because if a character makes an impression on you and then you don't get all the backstory that you want, there's so much for your imagination to fill up. So Mm -hmm. I get that, but I also like like it because I want to make it up myself. (laughs) That's totally fair. And and I mean, I don't even need the whole backstory. I just think more time with some of the characters. Like mm-hmm. I wanna I wanna spend more time with the Hammersmith man. He oh, he was so sweet. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't I, even think about the switching of the key, where she's like, I made him make a new key, you know? 
Yeah, I was so distracted by how much in love with him I was. <laughs> I wrote down like a little note about him. If I could just <laughs> read it. Okay. So one of the first things that we know about Hammersmith is he's like this big giant man who is su- surprisingly <laughs> a smith. Um, so this line said, Hammersmith enveloped Richard's hand in one several sizes up. His handshake was enthusiastic, but very gentle, as if he had, in the past, had a number of accidents shaking hands and had practiced it until he got it right. And I was just like, oh, my heart, my tender heart is breaking for this big, giant softie. I also love how I believe they describe the relationship between him and Dora as him knowing her from when she was very young. Yeah. And he calls her the Lady Door. And it's just so sweet. A fun fact. Yes. Old Bailey is actually a reference to the criminal justice court in... London. Okay, I was I was thinking when I was reading it, this name sounds familiar, but I mean, there's a lot of Baileys, a lot of old things and people, so cool. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of old things and people. You're right about that. True. <laughs> I am getting there. <laughs> so yeah, why don't we talk about some of our favorite parts and places of the underside? The underside. I love that there were so many names for this place, like Neverwhere and London Below and the Underside. It's very fun. Do they ever call it Neverwhere in the book? I think there's like one, or maybe I'm thinking about the synopsis in the back of the book. I'm not sure. Um, I feel oh. like someone says it to Richard, like, you're not mm. here, you're not there, you're Neverwhere. You know, I think it's something oh. like that, where it's like, you can't be in both spe- spots, oh. whatever, I think. I could be wrong. My favorite no, place was the market. Oh, yeah. I just love that it was in a different spot every time. And the first time you see it, it's in Harrods. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is just this super iconic um, kind of like the Bay-esque store that's super famous for all of its like amazing Christmas decorations Or and Macy's stuff. for American listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I love that traveling market. It's on a barge one night, you know, that's, that's just cool. I don't personally like going to markets in real life, but I could read about this one all day. <laughs> and didn't, uh, didn't Richard say or think to himself like, oh, cause he goes there with Jessica a lot or he oh, went Harrods. to Harrods. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. To Harrods. Yes. He's like, oh, I've been here. Like he thought about his sore feet with Harrods and the museums and everything. <laughs> yeah. Jessica. I don't know if I have a favorite a favorite place of the underside. I don't know. I did think it was kind of interesting or cool how when they went to down street, they literally just kept going down and the carpets and the stairs got worse and worse until it was just like bare bone, wooden (laughs) decrepit stairs. Mm -hmm. So I guess that'll be my favorite place in the underside. I thought that was fun. Yeah, I was really struck by Down Street, too. I kept thinking about, um, because I have to bring up Lord of the Rings in every single episode, I guess, but I kept thinking about the Mines of Moria and, like, that one scene where they're, like, jumping from the one decrepit staircase to the other and everything's, like, falling down around them and it's, like, this big empty Mm -hmm. space with just staircase in the middle. That's what I kept picturing and I was, like, really excited about it. 
Um, I think probably one of my favorite places that was just really memorable was the Earl's Court and oh, um, yeah. like the subway car where there was this like big giant Earl and all of these kind of like s- sort of medieval henchmen, but they were all kind of old and bumbly and like past their prime, but they still maintained this kind of Shakespearean act. It was really, um, really fun and memorable. And I thought about that one a lot as I was going through. And then when they went to feed the guests, they went to the yes. vending machine. <laughs> love it such hospitality you know (laughs) i will say thinking about um all of the back alleys and kind of shadier parts of the underside which is most of it let's be honest um it may it reminded me of the part in the mary poppins movie the first one the original one where the kids get lost in the alleys with all like the people in the shadows and the mm. chimney sweeps and the kids are terrified. <laughs> yeah. Am I thinking of the right movie? I think I am. That part always kind of freaked me out. And I, yeah, I feel like this would be Richard. <laughs> I'd be like, oh my God, where am I? <laughs> so why don't we get, why don't we start talking about our favorite quotes? I don't have many listed down because I was just reading it and I didn't tab it, but I did mark one spot that it's not a super important quote, (laughs) but it just made me laugh. And it's again, highlighting Neil Gaiman's sense of humor. And this is near the end of the book with, how do you say her name? Lamia? 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 I think she calls her I think he calls her Lamia in the audiobook. Okay. Lamia. Uh, he's actually trying to go down to Down Street <laughs> at this time. And the quote I highlighted was, Can I help you? said the footman. Richard had been told to fuck off and die with more warmth and good humor. <laughs> <laughs> I also highlighted that. I thought it was very funny. (laughs) He just had so many good short little snippets. And yeah, just, I I really, I mean, I connected totally. We have all been there. And I just found him so conversational at times, like where, how you just add things in as like a side note or a parenthetical when you're talking to someone that you're close with. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I just highlighted that because I thought that was so funny. (laughs) It made me laugh out loud when I read it. And then I had to explain it to Scott, my husband, (laughs) because he was like, okay. And I was like, this is funny. (laughs) Anyways, yeah. Nikki, do you want to share a quote? Yeah, I think one of my favorite quotes, and it actually comes from just my one of my favorite parts. The quote is, the only advice I can give you is what you're telling yourself. Only maybe you're too scared to listen. So Whoa. this is when he is doing the final trial at the Black Friars and he's talking to himself through Jessica and his friend, but really they're just outward expressions of his inner being. And when I was reading the book this time or listening to the book, I had a moment where I zoned out and then zoned back in and he was in the trial but I had forgotten about it. So he was talking to Jessica and Peter, I believe, is his friend's name, Gary. maybe? Gary. Gary. And um, I was like, what is even going on? And then 
I think it was Gary, Richard, but Gary who says this to Richard. And I was like, oh my God, that's right. (laughs) And I just, I felt like a lot of the things that were said in the trial are just things that you can use for yourself for introspection in times when things are kind of hard. (laughs) Yeah, I think that whole trial chapter was a really interesting commentary into, like, the idea of people falling through the cracks and, like, people who don't have homes being invisible and, like, all these kind of uh, preconceived notions that we have seeing someone who we don't understand. And that was what the whole trial was about, right? Was Richard kind of being put into the situation where he was being told by other people that like, Richard, you haven't been underground this whole time. You've just been wandering around the subway station talking to yourself. Like, I think maybe you need to come to terms with the fact that maybe it's all in your head. And that was what he was kind of most afraid of was that it was all um, not real. So that was a really great chapter, I think. I was I agree that there was a lot of really, really neat stuff in there. Um, but the line I want to read is about Old Daly, because I love him. Can I say and, a quick thing before oh. you get, because it's just the same point, or like, yes. down to your point, sorry, before you say that. Um, it's just like at the beginning of the book when he has that dream, or he says he mm-hmm. has a dream where people don't hear him, don't remember him, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then that happens in the trial, where people are like, no, or you know, just like discrediting him. So at the beginning, people don't know him, don't see him, don't remember him. And he's like, it's like those nightmares you have. And well, and I was like, yes, I think we all have had those nightmares. It is terrifying. And then that trial, yeah, that was really intense. Like, sorry, I just wanted to bring up the beginning because that was yeah, really a lot. But sorry, please tell us about Old Bailey. (laughs) Oh, man, I would love to. (laughs) So I think this is the chapter after the Marquis has been killed and Old Bailey uh, has the silver box and it starts to kind of like glow or thump or something ominous. And so before that happens, um, he's talking to his many birds on top of the rooftop and it says, The only public for Old Bailey's jokes consisted of a small captive audience of birds who, particularly the rooks, viewed his jokes as deep and philosophical parables containing some deep and penetrating insights into what it meant to be human, and who would actually ask him from time to time to tell them another of his amusing stories. And I was just really tickled by this image of like this this kind of like man with all these feathers all over him and like these giant glasses kind of standing on top of the rooftop telling them a joke badly and the birds being like, wow, this is really an insight into the human experience. Do you want to read the joke he says? Isn't it right there? Because he like says a joke but explains it all as he's saying it. Uh, So the joke that he goes on to say is, all right, all right, all right, Old Bailey was saying, stop me if you've heard this one before. There was a man walked into a bar. No, no, he wasn't a man. That's the joke. Sorry. He was a horse. A horse. No, uh, a piece of string. Three pieces of string. Right. Three pieces of string walk into a bar. (laughs) So he's like kind of just bumbling his way through everything. And these these birds are like, hmm, interesting. And so these pieces of string like... (laughs) Birds are so smart, so I I just really loved that. Bird brain. Bird brain. <gasps> Boom. Nailed it. <laughs> all right. Well, if that's all we have to share, I guess we should wrap this one up because 
the sewer water is starting to <laughs> work its magic. To hit. Yeah. So thanks so much for listening to this episode of the BYOB podcast. If you enjoyed this and want to hear more from us, you can head over to our social media accounts to keep up to date on all things BYOB. Stay tuned after this to hear the first line of our next read, a classic beloved by children and adults, The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. See you next time, and until then, keep on drinking in great stories. Cheers! Next time on BYOB, the Bring Your Own Book Podcast. Lyra and her demon move through the darkening hall, taking care to keep to one side out of sight of the kitchen. (laughs) 